Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Well, today begins our brand new Advent series. If you're unfamiliar with the word Advent, it just means arrival. And it's the season of the church where we look back and remember that Jesus came and we also remember that he is coming again. And this specific Advent series, we're going to be focusing on the theme of wonder. And what does it mean for Jesus coming into the world to recapture our awe and wonder again? And as we dive into that, I recognize that Christmas and the Advent season carries with it a host of different feelings and emotions. For some, it couldn't be better and you look forward to it all year round. For some, this is maybe the first Christmas season that you're missing someone who um, you're now grieving. Or maybe for some, this is just a, a tender time for you. And so whatever this season represents, I'm reminded by the words of the scholar that says, despite it all, Christmas comes. Whether we wish it or not, whether we are sure or not, we must hear the words once again, Christ the Savior is born. I love that. We must hear once again, Christ the Savior is born. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 9 verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So notice that in this messianic announcement of this infant Messiah that the very first title that's given to him is wonderful. It's a wonderful counselor. And that, that term wonder translates well. It, it's used a few different times throughout the Old Testament to talk about awe, to talk about this sense of majesty or transcendence. And the very first thing we realize about this child entering the world is that wonder will be re-brought to our attention and he'll be our counselor, our teacher of wonder. This week I was working with my daughter Zoe on a homework assignment that she had for English. And she had to dissect this poem by the American poet Walt Whitman. It says, When I heard the learned astronomer when the proofs, the figures were ranged in columns before me, when I was shown the charts and diagrams to add, divide, and measure them, when I sitting heard the astronomer where he lectured with much applause in the lecture room, how soon unaccountable I became tired and sick, till rising and gliding out I wandered off by myself in the mystical moist night air and from time to time looked up in perfect silence at the stars. I was chatting with my 15-year-old about this poem, and, and the picture that Whitman is painting is that the stars are being talked about in a lecture hall. It's being turned into charts and measurements, and the character in his poem eventually says he becomes sick and tired. So he wanders off out of the lecture hall outside and begins to start looking at the stars that he was just hearing a lecture about. And it was in that place that he encountered something that he calls mystical. And as we were talking about that poem, I found myself thinking about 
God in a very similar regard, specifically in our Western, highly intellectual culture, is something that we approach as something that we need to learn about rather than a person that we need to experience and encounter. And although through the scriptures and the Holy Spirit, there's so much to learn and we will spend all of eternity discovering who God is, that the discovery cannot be confined merely to intellect. God intends for us to encounter him. And we know that more clear than ever than this Advent season where we celebrate the incarnation, God becoming man. It was not enough for humanity to know about God. It was God's heart that they would actually know him and that we, through his Holy Spirit, would be able to continue to know God at a much deeper level and that that knowing of God would produce and evoke a sense of wonder and awe. Psalm 145.5 says, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. And if you remember that word, it means we're chewing on the wonder of who God is. Paul David Tripp's an author, and he wrote a really amazing book in 2014 called Awe, Why It Matters for Everything We Think, Say, and Do. And in this book, it's all about wonder and awe and why it's essential. He writes this, God created an awesome world. God intentionally loaded the world with amazing things to leave you astounded. The carefully air-conditioned termite mound in Africa, the tart crunchiness of an apple, the explosion of thunder, the beauty of an orchid, the interdependent system of the human body, the inexhaustible pounding of the ocean waves, and thousands of other created sights, sounds, touches, and tastes. God designed all to be awesome. And he intended you to be daily amazed. It's wrong not to be in awe of what God created, but it's even more deeply wrong when you can look at created glory without remembering God. Every awesome thing in creation is designed to point you to the one who alone is worthy of capturing and controlling the awe of your searching and hungry heart. This is a season that tries to capitalize on the idea of wonder. We do this from everything from Christmas lights to food to parties to sales at the mall. We're trying as a culture to recapture awe, but what we don't realize is everything that evokes awe and wonder in our heart will leave us unsatisfied unless it is linked to the one who deserves all of our awe and our wonder. It's why Eugene Peterson says that wonder is the only adequate launching pad for exploring the fullness and wholeness of human life. Once a year, each Christmas, for a few days at least, we and millions of our neighbors turn aside from our preoccupations with life, reduced to biology or economics or psychology, and join together in a community of wonder. The wonder keeps us open-eyed, expectant, alive to life. That is always more than we can account for. That always exceeds our calculations. That is always beyond anything that we can make it. I mean, when's the, when's the last time you were absolutely overwhelmed by wonder. A couple of years ago, I was surfing at Ponto Beach and I was with a friend and I was doing something that I have done my whole life and something that I've enjoyed my whole life. And every time it gives me a sense of awe and wonder. Yet this specific session when we were out, 
I saw something move in the water. And as I began to observe it, thinking maybe it was a seal, but then it was bigger than a seal, maybe it was a dolphin, and then immediately being overcome by fear, thinking maybe it's something bigger than a dolphin, maybe it's a shark. All of a sudden, a whale breached its back and blew out of its blowhole 10 feet away from me. And the whale must have been 20 feet long. And I immediately was aware of how small and insignificant I was in that moment. And I remember catching a few waves going in and continuing to watch this young whale play close to shore and realizing that something that had always felt so familiar and comfortable for me, now I was overcome by a new level of awe and wonder. And, and that is really my hope and my prayer for this Christmas season, is that whether you've never encountered the incarnational love of Jesus or whether you have encountered it in such a way that it has become familiar and tame, that this would be a season where once again wonder is stirred up in our souls. And so we're going to be doing this by looking at a few different characters in the nativity story who found themselves in wonder and awe at the miracle of Christ's birth. And we're going to begin with Mary. Mary has quickly become one of my favorite spiritual heroes in all of Scripture. And the older I get, the more that I study about her, the more I realize that she is truly a unique character in the scripture story because of a myriad of things that we're going to look at. But what I want to do is I want to point us to Matthew and Luke's gospel and how they begin at the birth of Jesus. And they do this in a narrative way. Um, Mark kind of picks up the story right as Jesus begins ministry. John tells a more poetic version but Matthew and Luke tell the story. And Matthew's gospel is very interesting. It begins the story of Jesus with the genealogy, which is a very Jewish way of telling a story. But what is unlike normal Jewish, Jewish genealogies is that if you were to read it, most of us probably skip Matthew chapter 1, what you'll find in the midst of that genealogy is that there are four women mentioned. And if you were to look at other Jewish genealogies, that's incredibly rare, if not hardly seen at all. But these four different women have shocking similarities in that every single one of them had experienced a deep sense of loss, oppression, scandal, and that all four of them were uniquely placed in the lineage and the story of the coming Messiah. The first one is Rahab who was a prostitute in the walls of Jericho that was instrumental in bringing about the, the occupation of that city by Israel. The next is Ruth, who her marriage at an early age is marked with grief as she loses her husband and eventually is married and redeemed by a man named Boaz. And thirdly, there's a story of Bathsheba, who's mentioned as the mother of Solomon, who was against her will, commanded to go and sleep with the king who at that time was David, and was a life that was marked not by her own free will, largely by tragedy, and ultimately redemption through her son Solomon. And then the last woman who's mentioned is the woman that we're going to be focusing on today's teaching, the woman called Mary. And as you look at Mary's story, what we find in Luke's gospel 
is that her story is inter, interwoven with another story that is happening simultaneously, and it's the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are the parents of John the Baptist. Now, if you read the story uh, through the first two chapters of Luke, what you will find is a lot of similarities between Zechariah and Mary's encounter in terms of the announcement that they're giving that they're about to be giving birth. And so I just wanted to, um, there should be a chart that shows up on your screen that mentions these different parallels. Zechariah had the vision that he was the, as he receives a vision, he was troubled, so was Mary. Zechariah was told by the angel not to fear, as was Mary. Then they were both given the reason for the miracle. They were both given the name of their child. Zechariah's would be John, Mary's would be Jesus. Both of them said their child will be great. Zechariah said that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb, where Mary was told that in her womb, the Holy Spirit would conceive Jesus. Then it talks about the mission that they would both accomplish. Then Zechariah and Mary both ask a question. Then both of them are given the proof of the explanation. Zechariah is muted for his unbelief, but Mary is praised for her faith. And then in both stories, it talks about how the child grows. Now, why is that important that Luke, who is a historian, he's very intentional with how he's writing, is paralleling these stories of how it happened? I believe there's three reasons that, or three things we need to pay attention to as we look at this story that helps elevate our understanding of Mary's unique role. Number one is structural, secondly is social, and thirdly is theological. Structurally speaking, not only are there two mirrors here, but oftentimes in Jewish writing, what you'll have is a story of a great and then the story of the greater. Think of, David, of Saul and David. And what's happening here is you're talking a story of a baby, that's John the Baptist, who was called great, but then you have the story of Jesus who will be even greater. But what's surprising is that in the structure, what you have is in, again, in Jewish writings, we called a chiasm, meaning that you have kind of a sandwich effect that it's moving towards the middle. And the sandwich is Zechariah. It's the announcement that he's given and the song that he sings. But as you move closer to the middle, you find Mary, her announcement and the song that she sings. And what's happening in this story is a few things, and we, we can't miss this. What Luke is saying through the Holy Spirit's inspiration is that the greatest, Jesus is coming through an unlikely vehicle. Jesus is coming through an insignificant, unwed, young girl from Nazareth, not an elderly, respected, well-off, socially acceptable priest in Jerusalem. And by the literary structure, what he's doing is he's saying, that these two characters are, it's not what you think. It's so powerful and so profound. I mean, think about where they are, right? Zechariah's in Jerusalem. He's ministering at the temple. Mary's from Nazareth. Na Nazareth is a, a migrant town outside of a small farming town. I mean, think of a, a small town outside of Bakersfield or Fresno or something. And then you think of Los Angeles or New York City. You think about something, these difference. And geographically speaking, He's trying to make a point. Then you think about what they did, right? Zechariah was a priest attending to the temple of God. There was not a higher position you could have within Jewish society. Mary was 
an unwed, um, an unwed young girl, which in that society had no social significance whatsoever. And any significance she would bring would come after she was married and more significantly after she was given birth. And none of those things were established at the point when God points her out and picks her. And the last thing to point out is even just her age. In Jewish culture, unlike ours, age meant something largely because people didn't live that long. So if you had age, you were well off in age, that meant that you had carried a level of wisdom that was sought after. But again, Mary's young. What does she have to bring? And the reason why this is so important is the theological implications here. And so the New Testament begins with the, with the woman and the actual Old Testament begins also with the woman. And this is what I want us to point out. And I think what the, the New Testament authors are trying to get us to point out is what happened with Eve is being restored through Mary. And you might be, well, how does that take place? Well, Eve was first and unique in terms of being a recipient of deception. She was the first to be deceived. But Mary comes along, and she is first and unique in being a recipient of redemption. And what this says is not so much about Eve and Mary, as much as it says about the very nature of God, that God will not leave things that are broken hurt out of order apart from his redemption a part of his hope the first week of advent is about hope and the story that mary was chosen against all social norms is a story of hope the, the fact that mary was chosen to be the one who would be the first to house and sing to and to mother and to be alongside the son of god is a redemptive narrative and so when we look at mary we get to look at something that God is trying to get our attention to. She's rewriting a beautiful story. And so three things that I wanted to point out about Mary that can help evoke wonder in our own hearts. Three things that Mary does that I find incredibly both profound and practical. She surrenders, she ponders, and she praises God. So a quick word on each of these. Number one is that she surrenders. Luke 1.26 says that in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth and to a town of Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at the words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. She literally, the, the word is she came, was come over with wonder. But the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call his name Jesus. He goes on to say that he will be great and be holy. And she asks him, how is this going to be since I am a virgin? The angel, the angel answered in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come on you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Now listen to Mary's response. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. If we, in looking at this story, 
could pay attention not only to the significance the biblical authors are giving to Mary, but what her response was. I think it will change the trajectory, not only of the Christmas season, but really of our life. The, the, this phrase, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. There's something about Mary's level of surrender in contrast to Zechariah's response of doubt that is incredibly rattling. It, may, it should make all of us say, would we respond to that level of, of promise? Because everything changes for Mary. Nothing will be the same for her because her entire world is about to be flipped upside down, not just physiologically, biologically, but socially. That her reputation will forever be tarnished, that she is now pregnant without ever having been married. There's so many things that are going on here that Mary exemplifies a level of surrender that is incredibly beautiful. An excerpt from a poem by Alison Woodward says this, which is a reflection on Mary, but I think really of all mothers. She says, to be a mother is to suffer, to travel in the dark, stretched and torn, exposed in half-naked humiliation, subjected to indignities for the sake of new life. To be a mother is to say, this is my body broken for you. And in the next instant, in response to the created's hunger, this is my body, take and eat. Mary offered her body for the sake of the son that would come from her. Little did she know that her son would then offer his body for her to actually have new life as well. And Mary's response is something we should all pay attention to. Because the reality is, is none of us like surrender. None of us want to give up control, yet at the same time, oftentimes it's within the act of surrender that we actually find our freedom. Jacques Philippe, who's a French priest and author, writes about this in his book, Interior Freedom. He says, there is paradoxically law of human life here. One cannot become truly free unless one accepts not always being free. To achieve true interior freedom, we must train ourselves to accept peacefully and willingly plenty of things that seem to contradict our freedom. <laughs> Very true of Mary. This means consenting to our personal limitations, our weaknesses, our powerlessness, this or that situation that life imposes on us, and so on. We find it difficult to do this because we feel a natural revulsion for situations we cannot control. But the fact is that the situations that really make us grow are precisely those we do not control. Mary modeled for us, be it done unto me as you've said. I am the Lord's servant. Second thing that Mary did is she pondered. If you skip to the next chapter in Luke chapter 2, the shepherds come and they find Mary, and they see the baby. And it says afterwards that all who heard of it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Verse 19 says, but Mary treasured up all of these things and pondered them in her heart. The whole world is freaking out. Yet Mary not only surrendered, but she pondered. The word treasured in her heart is only used a few times in the New Testament. 
Um, the other times it's used is in Luke 2.9, talking about new wine being in new wineskins and it's fermenting. Think about that picture. What does it mean to ponder the things in your heart? It's almost as if wine is fermenting inside of you. It's also used for when the John the Baptist was kept safe in a cell. It's this keeping away. It's this storing up of, of what is happening. I love what St. Augustine said. It says, ultimately, it was more important Mary housed Christ in her heart than in her womb. That is what it means to ponder. None of us will ever play the role of Mary housing Christ in our womb, but all of us have the invitation to house Christ in our heart, to ponder him. And the last thing that Mary did is that she praised. One of the most notable pieces of literature we have for Mary is what's called the Magnificat. Magnificat is a song that she sings after her time with Elizabeth when she's pregnant with Jesus. I want to read this to you, and depending on your theology, this is often considered by many the first worship song that is sung directly to Jesus. And in her own young, teenage, unwed words, in surrender and in pondering, she writes this, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary's Magnificat, her song that she sings, tells us a few things about herself. One is how she viewed herself in humility. Who is it that he found me in my low estate, which we've already talked about? It also reveals that she actually had a very deep knowledge of scripture. She is very much mirroring Hannah's prayer, who um, becomes pregnant with Samuel. She also has an incredibly high view of God. You'll notice that the song moves from very personal and intimate to cosmic in scope talking about generations all the way back from Abraham, talking about rulers and thrones, like God is coming to overthrow as he rightfully brings his kingdom. This song is an, a, an incredible example of what worship can and should be. James K. Smith says that worship that restores us is worship that restories us. This is a type of worship song that restories who we are. So what's our response? Our response is those same three things. It is surrender, it is to ponder, and it is to praise. First, I would encourage you to surrender. Surrender is something that we never graduate from in our Christian journey. It is something that we are invited to do every single day. I found myself this week having a tough moment and I immediately started prayerfully evaluating my life. And, and if I can be honest with you, I confessed to God that I felt like I was doing everything right. And it was in that moment I realized how deep 
my desire for control was. That somehow how I lived meant that I had to have some sort of circumstantial experience that was void of trouble. When what I really needed in that moment was surrender. It was to be able to separate my desired outcome from my full trust in who God is. And that's what wonder does. It just, it, it, it enlarges who God is in our mind and allows us to fall back into who he is. Thomas Kelly in his masterful book, A Testament of Devotion, says, For God himself works in our souls in their deepest depths, taking increasing control as we progressively, willingly to be prepared for his wonder. We cease trying to make ourselves the dictators and God the listener and become the joyful listeners to him, the master who does all things well. My my prayer this season is that I would slowly stop seeing myself as the dictator and God the listener and that I would joyfully become the listener of the master who does all things well. And when we surrender that. Kind of the the next thing that we're invited to do is to ponder, to treasure things in our heart. Um, At a very practical level, I would encourage every single one who's watching this, we're going to encourage everyone who's there on Sunday as well, to actually memorize Mary's song. Memorize the Magnificat. Like put it to memory, like let it lodge deep into your heart. This sense, because Mary, is as she's, Singing this song inspired by the Holy Spirit, she's drawing from what? From scripture that is hidden within her heart. Reminds me of the poem by Martha Postlewaite. says, do not try to save the whole world or do anything grandiose. Instead, create a clearing in the dense forest of your life and wait there patiently until the song that is your life falls into your own cupped hands and you recognize and greet it. Only then will you know how to give yourself to this world so worthy of rescue. And the last thing that I just wanted to encourage you with is that this Advent season, um, it's a moment to surrender. It's a moment to ponder. And it is a season to praise. It is a season to sing a song. I, I, was, I was writing this sermon and I, put down my notes, and I just went for a walk, and I said, Lord, I want my life to be a magnificat. Magnificat in Latin just means praise. It means his praise. I want my life to be more than just a, a song I sing on Sundays or on the radio. I want my life to be this melodious magnification of who Jesus is. And, I, and I was on my walk, I, I was walking along the beach, And I was like, Lord, how do I move into wonder? How does my praise get immersed into wonder? And I had been writing my sermon, watching the surfers. It was on a Thursday. It was stormy and cloudy and wet. And I had observed the water. And I felt like the Holy Spirit said, get in the water. And I said, that sounds like a terrible idea. It's very cold. It's very windy. It just rained. And I just felt again that the difference, if you want to know what it means to praise in the midst of a wondrous soul, it is the difference between observing the waves and entering into them. And so I had some trunks and a towel in my car. I changed and I found myself dipping into this cold water. And this thing that felt safe and warm in my car that I could observe all of a sudden, I found myself immersed in. 
and what it was doing to my body and the chattering of my jaw and the sensation of my breathing in the cold water did something completely different. And, and for me, it was just this very practical thing of, Lord, that's what I want. I don't want to observe you this Christmas season. I want to be immersed in you this Christmas season. You see, G.K. Chesterton says that we are perishing for a lack of wonder, not for a lack of wonders. We're not, we're not perishing because there's not enough to see and be in awe of. We're perishing because we need wonder stirred up in our hearts again. I just want to leave you with this last quote from St. Augustine. When in talking to God, it says, You never go away from us, yet we have difficulty in returning to you. Come, Lord. Stir us up and call us back. Kindle and seize us. Be our fire and our sweetness. Let us love. Let us run. That is my prayer for us as a community this Advent season. Would we become a people in the same modeling of Mary that surrender to Christ, who ponder Christ, and who praise Christ with our life, that our life would be the magnificent, that we would immerse ourselves in the wonder of who Jesus is this year. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.